What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. People are strange. strange. Is that strange? That is strange. That is strange. Well, that is strange. This is strange. Dr. Rish, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate your time. I am well aware of you as a person, you as a, a physician, uh, or epidemiologist, I should say. Could you please describe your credentials, your experience with treating and studying COVID and what your main goals are? So I'm a career-long cancer epidemiologist. After medical school, I went and got a PhD in mathematical modeling of infectious epidemics. And you'd think that would have some relationship to the pandemic, which actually it does. Yeah. But, but then I did a postdoc in epidemiology at the University of Washington and began a, a career in studying cancer etiology by epidemiologic means doing studies to do that. And uh, eventually along the way, I got onto uh, an elected member of the Connecticut Academy of Science and Engineering. And when the pandemic happened, the committee struck up, uh, the academy struck up a committee to guide, to help guide the governor in relaxing the lockdown in Connecticut. Now we weren't the governor's official committee. We were an ad hoc committee of out-of-the-box people. So there was me, there was my dean, who's also an epidemiologist. There were a few clinicians. There uh, was um, a clinical psychologist, uh, a physicist, a jet plane engine designer who knows all about airflow. Um, and so this was a very disparate kind of group that had a lot of complementary expertise. My job on it was to look at early outpatient treatment. And so I did that. I looked at hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir was potentially going to be an outpatient treatment. So I looked at that too, compiled all the evidence bearing on all of that, wrote up a review paper that was peer reviewed by the editors of the journal, not by outside reviewers, but by editors of the journal, and then published in the American Journal of Epidemiology in May of 2020 showing that hydroxychloroquine had very strong evidence for its benefit when used early in the first few days of symptoms in outpatients not in hospital patients but in outpatients and people at high risk who had some risk of being hospitalized and this paper 
got a lot of attention. It's been downloaded more than 90,000 times now yes. and 160,000 page views, et cetera. For a scientific paper, that's kind of remarkable. It's the highest ever on from the American Journal of Epidemiology, as far as I know. I wrote a, a Newsweek op-ed about it because the whole point of this is in the early stages of the pandemic, there was nothing offered to patients when they got COVID other than go home when you can't breathe, come back to the hospital. That is not medical care. That is not standard of care. That is not how we knew how to deal with respiratory illnesses. That is not how doctors who were actually working to treat patients were, were doing it. And so I, and that this medication, hydroxychloroquine, is so widely used. It's been used for malaria prevention and treatment around the world for 65 years in tens of billions of doses, in hundreds of millions of people safely, completely safely. The people who've had serious or life-threatening adverse re responses to this medication is vanishingly small. It's less than being struck by lightning. Well, it, it's, it, excuse me for interrupting, but it's so safe that even pregnant women can use it. Is that correct? Pregnant women, uh, infants, uh, frail elderly, everybody. It, 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 there are, are a few defined conditions, genetic conditions, that a doctor needs to be aware of that one would, would look at, but by and large, routinely, it is given without EKG, without any real medical surveillance, and it's used for rheumatic um, illnesses, uh, auto-inflammatory disease, like like uh, rheumatoid arthritis, mm. lupus, and so on. It's a very commonly used medication. It's used safely. And so the, 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 the trade-off here is when you have a pandemic, that you have a medication, that there's evidence that of benefit, when it's not, maybe you say it's not proven, okay, it's not proven, but there's strong evidence for it. Yeah. And there is no downside. There's nothing being displaced by it. There's no opportunity cost. And the thing costs 40 cents a day to use for treatment. Mm -hmm. what, is, what is the reason not to use it? There is no reason not to use it, even if it didn't work. There's no reason not to use it. And that was the whole point of saying it needed to be used. And then the fact that there was this, all this gigantic, aggressive, manipulative, propagandic, propagandistic push against using hydroxychloroquine at the outset of the pandemic shows you that something, some interest was being threatened by it. And now you can figure out which interest came along a year later that was threatened by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially with the the Twitter drops that are happening right now implicating Dr. Fauci, the NIH, Moderna, Pfizer, everybody working behind the scenes to uh, squash any alternative therapies out there. Now, with HCQ, um, you studied or you had your paper come out. How much how much longer was it until The Lancet published that report, that damning report that ended up being retracted? Because uh, that's that's what I wanted to get your uh, your input on is why was that Lancet report retracted? I know why it was pushed out there to push fear, uh, to push fear on hydroxychloroquine. Everybody was saying that hydroxychloroquine scars the heart, which is ironic because now when you look at the mRNA injection, what is it doing to people's hearts? So it's uh, why was the Lancet report retracted? Well, it was both the Lancet and New England Journal of Medicine reports that were both retracted mm. that were done by an organization under the name Surgisphere. We don't even know whether this is a real entity or not. Oh. And the reason they were retracted is because scientists around the world quickly realized 
that the data were too good to be true, that the data being represented in the Surgisphere paper purported to have such voluminous data from all over the world. And in particular, they had more deaths from COVID in Australia than the country had recorded for the time period in question. That made it impossible. And mm -hmm. so people pushed back and said, we're not going to believe this until you show us your real data. And then it turns out that this is an entity with four employees that has, you know, I don't even know if it's got a storefront. Um, and there's no possible way that these four employees could have rounded up the, the database of information that they purported to, to say was what was being studied in the paper, and they refused to provide the original data, and so the journal was forced to retract this as, as fraudulent, which is what it was. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, because that was a big deal. I remember that's why they used that CDC, or the CDC used that study to basically get rid of hydroxychloroquine altogether, right? To say, hey, stop prescribing this. Well, so this, the, a number of agencies, CDC and WHO, both both did. They both made up fake reasons. The whole thing has been a fraud from beginning to end on all the pushback on this medication. But in particular, if you go to the FDA's websites, the FDA on, on um, I think July 1st, they canonized their web, July 1st of 2020, canonized a website warning in big letters, big black stentorian letters saying, warning, hydroxychloroquine should not be used for outpatient treatment of COVID. By the way, this doesn't apply to lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, which is perfectly fine to use in much larger doses. That's a sub message. Warning, don't use this. And then it says, why not? So you look down in the fine print and it, well, and it says, because of risks of, of cardiac irregularities, heart rhythm irregularities. And you look down in the fine print and it says, we base this warning on uh, one study of hospitalized patients. So here you have a warning about use in outpatients. And then they, they say they based it on hospitalized patients. Now, you can assume that CDC and FDA, if they have real data applying to what they want to say, they're going to tell you the real data. So FDA putting out this website saying, warning for outpatients, and, and then saying, but we base this on hospitalized patients, it's proof right there that they had no systematic data on outpatient use. And if they had no systematic data on outpatient use, they have no data to say that this should be a warning in outpatient use. It's as plain as day from that website. The website is a fraud. It's been a fraud. It's still there as far as I know. It's, it's been there the whole pandemic. It is an absolute fraud. Yeah, understandable. And I mean, the reason why they had to poo-poo HCQ is because they can't have this or emergency medical declaration, right, to push the mRNA jabs. Is that correct? Well, yes and no. So under emergency circumstances, the FDA can temporarily approve under this EUA emergency use authorization scheme medications and vaccines that it deems worth taking the risk over with lesser evidence of benefit and safety. And part of doing this is in the slides that the FDA had an internal meeting that got somehow got leaked for a day and we all found mm -hmm. is a slide that describes the conditions for being able to do this. And one of the conditions is that there is no generally available uh, other mechanism being a drug or a vaccine that could be used. And so this is all that's left is to relax the standards of approval to do this under the EUA auspices. Now, so in theory, that's what we thought. 
that they had to do this in order to keep open the the playing field for vaccines or what we thought would be coming expensive patent outpatient medications, which never materialized in, in 2020. And but the, the strange thing about this is that the FDA has approved multiple things under the EUA guise and totally violated that premise that there's nothing else available. So it's approved mm -hmm. multiple vaccines. It's approved Molnupiravir. It's a, approved uh, Paxlovid. You know, all of these things are being approved when basically they've said the first thing out the door is the one that gets approved. And, and then you have everything else has to follow under normal circumstances. But they didn't do that. And since they didn't do that, we know that had hydroxychloroquine and later ivermectin been allowed to be used, been not suppressed by all of the, this malfeasance, then they still could have approved the vaccines and other medications because they didn't even hold to their own standards. So there's something even you know more nefarious going on than just what the FDA says it's, it's actually doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's so bizarre because even with um, monoclonal antibodies, like, um, what was it, uh, Regeneron, right? Well, there's been a number of them. Um, yes. Yeah, so, but with Regeneron specifically, I know that um, Trump took that one and Governor DeSantis was trying to create kind of a bolus of supply for Floridians. And then all of a sudden, the halting of production of monoclonal antibodies. When it was been, it's been proven, I mean, from all that I could see, to be very effective with treating COVID. And um, it's, it's bizarre because the reason, I think the rationale for stopping those was that it didn't work with the current strain of Omicron. Right. And why didn't they make one for the new strains? Exactly. And it's like, well, what is the vaccine doing? It's, it's going for the alpha and the beta variants, you know, the spike protein variants. So, I mean, why are we still using those? Why aren't those recalled as well? Well, they should be, but even the, the bivalent uh, vaccine booster is old news. It's out of, it was out of date the, the day it was released. Yes. Uh, so what is your thought on uh, Regeneron and monoclonal antibodies? I think they had a purpose. I think that they were useful in older people. Uh, I think that basically when you don't, when you have a new illness, you don't know how to treat, you throw everything at it, everything's safe to throw at it. And that should have been part of things that were deemed safe and useful. And I'm not in love with any one particular thing, even though I've spent so much time arguing for hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, but the monoclonal antibodies are an important component of treatment, just like steroids, just like other medications, and vitamin D, of course, and zinc and, and, and vitamin C and so on. Gotcha. Yeah, it was just bizarre to me because um, I'm just thinking it's a pharmaceutical product. It was making a lot of money, I'm sure. And it just it got squashed. And I'm like, what? Why would they do that? I don't, it just it blew my mind. But um, when it comes to uh, from a perspective of an epidemiologist, could you please describe the difference between this COVID response and how it differed from previous outbreak responses that we've had in this country? Well, interestingly, uh, Tom Inglesby, who has been heavily involved in the COVID management, the pandemic management, wrote a paper in 2006 uh, talking about influenza pandemic management. And in that paper, he says, 
not to do essentially everything that we did do. So there's a, there was a pandemic plan. It was called PANCAP. I forget exactly what it stands for, that the um, CDC and others had worked on before COVID. It was modified slightly at the beginning called PANCAP A. And, but it was still basically what Inglesby and, and colleagues had written in 2006 that was accepted knowledge about how to manage a, a respiratory virus pandemic. And at the very, at five days or so after the emergency was declared, that was all thrown out. And the exact opposite of everything was done. And part of the reason for this was that five days after the emergency was declared, the president authorized the National Security Council to take control of the pandemic as a bioterrorism attack. Mm. That this was changed from public health to biowarfare. Wow. Once that happened, it became militarized. And under military circumstances, everything that we've seen has been under their control, including the approvals of the vaccines and other medications. And in fact, all of the committees that we've seen that review the, the supposed evidence of safety and efficacy that the manufacturers have provided to the CDC and FDA committees, and you have all these expert scientists, half of whom have conflicts of interest, sitting there making, looking like they're actually making decisions about the vaccines. They're not actually doing that because the vaccines have been pre-approved because they were forced by the military. So they're not vaccines, they're countermeasures. You can, you can argue whether they're vaccines or gene therapy uh, devices. They are gene therapy in the technical sense, whether you wanna call that vaccines or not, is an, is an academic discussion, but both are irrelevant because they're actually countermeasures. And countermeasures do not need to be approved by FDA and CDC. They were uh, authorized under an, an extended authority from the military. And that is the real underlying problem here, that, that when this was militarized, it was done so without regard to the science and everything else was done to make it look like there was actual public health going on instead of military incompetence. Wow. So this whole thing is controlled by the military right now, still to this day? Yes. Huh. Wow, that blows my mind. Um, I mean, I'm not shocked. But yeah, I'm not shocked that they are treating it like a bio-warfare because I, in my mind, this isn't Dr. Rich's uh, ideology here. This is uh, Greg speaking. I think this was a bioweapon from the start. I think this was a whole pandemic uh, designed to shut down the, the economy to institutionalize medical tyranny. I think that you had bureaucratics uh, influence on big pharma. And I think that they work together to propagate everybody to and subjugate them to this medical experiment in order to make money off of uh, an experimental jab. And uh, regardless of the consequences, um, you know, and, and we're, we're seeing all the consequences today. I mean, we've been seeing it for the last several years with um, all the mandates and whatnot, but um, in your opinion, what is the extent that our government uh, has has put their fingers into this as far as Fauci, NIH, military? How far do you think that that goes? So that was what I thought for the first year and a half of the pandemic, that this was just corruption and the government being the FDA and CDC being regulatory captured by pharma, which they are. And... But in reflecting over it over the last few months and realizing how much military control there was, I'm not 100% sure that that was really what's been going on. Uh, 
the you have to re realize that first of all the research into this virus in that led to its creation is a, a decade or or so old mm -hmm. that the virus itself we have absolute biological proof was human engineered to to be as toxic and destructive as it turned out to be at least when it it first escaped now can i can i stop you right there and then ask you to uh, expand on that so the proof what do we have that is that shows that it was designed by humans okay in this virus in its genetic code is a sequence of the code that is 19 letters long now that 19 letters does not occur in the virus naturally in its predecessor viruses naturally the only place it occurs is in a gene sequence in a Moderna patent from 2017 and other versions of the patent. Yep, I heard when about that. When you take that sequence and you query it in the NIH online database of, of the genetic sequences of 100,000 organisms that have been studied for, for their genetics, the only place it comes up is in SARS-CoV-2. Nothing else. No other organism has this. So except for Moderna patent, and in the virus. Now, so the, the fact that, that the sequence is 19 letters long makes it unique. In genetics work, genetic, geneticists try to find where in the genome certain markers are. Mm -hmm. So for example, the, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, its genetic length is about 30,000 letters. Humans, it's about 3 billion. Okay, and but if you want to find where something is, what you do is you make a unique sequence of some length and you see where it exists. In, and when you make them, when you get to 19, 20, 21 letters long, then you find that they only exist in one place or nowhere. And so you can pin an exact location in a genetic sequence of an organism by matching it to a sequence that you construct artificially that's this length, 19 long. And so a 19 long sequence is essentially unique and therefore, the fact that you see that in this uh, in the genetic code of, of the SARS-CoV-2 makes it a, a human construct because of where else it occurs in a human patent, in a can, Moderna patent. Can now, I, there's one other thing about this. Ooh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay. So it's not just like, oh, well, there's this, these 19 letters that are somewhere in, in the genetic code of, of this virus, you know, hoo-ha, man put it there, but, but we don't know why. We do know why. Because... It was known, it's written in, in the various Moderna patents, that the spike protein that's on these coronaviruses does not naturally invade, allow the virus to invade human lung tissue cells. It's very, it's very resistant, doesn't work well for humans to do that. But if you break the spike, pro, spike protein at a certain location, what's left on the virus will enter human cells with alacrity. Mm -hmm. It goes in very easily. That's called the um, furin cleavage site. That's, that's the technical name of what this place where you break it is. This 19-letter sequence puts into the, the, the viral code a furin cleavage site right at that place where it makes this virus human lung cell infectious. And it not only does that, but it adds a place where the enzyme that, that, that puts the, the, the Moderna sequence into the virus sequence binds to that location. So it has two functions. These 19 letters have two functions, both to encode this function, uh, this gain of function function to make the virus invade human cells. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, to put this sequence from the Moderna 
version into the virus itself. So there is no possible way. This was an engineered device that was, was put at the, the very position to do what it needed to be done in order to make the virus infectious. And it's long enough that it could not have occurred by chance. And that's the, it's a proof. There, yeah. There's no other alternate, you know, uh, explanation. No, I, I 100% agree. Um, have you heard anything about splicing of a specific section of the HIV virus into COVID? No. Okay. See, the problem with that is when you look for shorter sequences, you can find lots of similarities because the um, viruses and other genetic sequences are so long that that length makes things happen by chance, even though they're not really functional the same way. Things mm. happen out there in nature, and when they work for nature, nature copies them all over the place. That's evolution. So it's not unlikely to find similarities across different organisms and, you know, and even having some similar kinds of toxicities. But that doesn't mean that they were put there on purpose. Something gotcha. this long with, with this specific a function, it can only have occurred on purpose. Yeah, right. 19 base pairs, you said? Yes. So, yeah, I mean, the odds of that happening in nature is very slim. Very, uh, it, It's astronomically small. Okay. And so that right there. So when I first asked you, what is the extent of the military, Fauci, NIH, um, the, you were talking about the extension of research. This has been researched for uh, at least over 10 years. And then um, you said that there's no doubt that this was man-made. Then I stopped you. What, do you remember where you were kind of going with that whole? Yes. Okay. So this was man-made. It's not apparent whether this leaked by accident or uh, purposely. We don't know that. That will be very difficult to determine. Even if we had perfect information, it, it might be very difficult to determine. There's evident, very good evidence that this was out and people were getting infected by September, October of 2019, that there were cases even in the US by that point, that this information has been suppressed because the lockdowns, which occurred in March, you know, middle of March, I believe, uh, occurred under the premise that there weren't cases in the population, and therefore locking down was going to prevent more cases from happening. However, that obviously didn't work well, because the cases were already seeded into the U.S. <clears throat> from various places. And because we know that, for example, there were cases all over northern Italy, in particular in Milan, in September, October of 2019, because people have analyzed stored blood samples from other studies that happened to collect the blood samples in those um, in that time period and found positivity for the virus. Mm. And the reason for that is Milan is the garment center, the clothing manufacturing center of Italy. And there's a very large trade between China and Milan in clothing manufacturing. And so there's a large Chinese community living in Milan and going going back and forth. Gotcha. Is there any speculation on when? So you said it first came here in September 2019. Do you know exactly how it might have gotten here? We don't know. I mean, it was brought in by people being infected, not knowing they were infected, mm. thinking when they got sick that they had some kind of flu-like illness. Respiratory illnesses in general are very similar in their symptoms. And so it, it would be relatively easy to mistake mild cases, meaning people don't get hospitalized, uh, with having a flu or something like that and not pointing to a brand new pandemic. 
So the, the, what I think is, is happening is at the same time that this gain of function research was going on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, funded through Fauci's um, Institute, NIAID, funded by the Department of Defense mm -hmm. to the tune of $60 million, laundered through EcoHealth Alliance to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They were doing this gain of function research. They were doing it under the time that it was prohibited to be done between 20, 2014, 2017, that we don't quite know yet who at NIH signed off on this. Uh, we do know who the program project officers were on it, but they have not been um, you know, questioned yet, as far as I know, as to whether they did the sign off, whether Fauci did the sign off, we don't know that yet. But somebody signed off because the papers that were published in 2015 and 2016 said that we did, we continued this gain of function research through the prohibited period because NIH said signed off on allowing us to do it. So this was done. The whole thing backfired, obviously, or was intentionally released. And we have the military then in control of attempting to cover up the origin. Now, you have to realize also at the same time that the military picked, or the government picked who were going to be the vaccine manufacturers. So mm -hmm. uh, Moderna, BioNTech, uh, BioNTech, which is Pfizer and Moderna, were picked as the primary vaccine manufacturers. They were given very large amounts in the billions of, of dollars to do the, the manufacturing process. And th there were others who competed and had, did have some federal funding, but by and large, these two uh, companies were chosen to produce the vaccine. And they had been working on this vaccine under government support for much longer than just the, the duration when the pandemic started. So they had been going on for some time doing this research, picked by the government, and then so, there, so this is the public-private partnership, which is otherwise known as corporate fascism, mm -hmm. that the United States has been subjected to, the Americans have been subjected to, by this plausibility statement that we, the government, can't do this alone. We need the help of big companies, so we're going to support them. And what that really means is we and the big companies are going to control everything about this. Now, and that's, now, what, and that's what happened. Do you think that Moderna was chosen because they partially created this virus. I mean, their genome was inside of this COVID strain, right? So they were responsible for it. So were they chosen to kind of cover up their own tracks as well? I'm not sure. Moderna has been making mRNA viruses for livestock for veterinary use for maybe 10 years. None of those vaccines have, the mRNA vaccines have worked well. They've all had some serious adverse events for the veterinary purposes. None of them have worked to prevent illnesses more than a year. They're very short-lived for what they purported to do. This was known. Moderna never had a human product for the 10 years it, uh, it was doing its research and, until COVID. And so this work was going on, but the real bottom line for this is not even COVID. The whole point of an mRNA vaccine is that it took a decade to develop what they call the platform, meaning the the envelope, the 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 lipid nanoparticle the that delivery surrounds system. the genetic, right? The 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 particle that surrounds the contents, the contents being the genetic information that will be taken in by the body to to make antigens that the body will then make antibodies for. So this system 
that was developed over a decade, and not just by Moderna, but a number of, of companies participated in this. And then they load the payload, the contents of this mRNA sequence that codes for the spike protein. This was how the COVID vaccine was done so quickly because the background of having invented all of this particle delivery system had already been done of, based on a decade of research and, and so on. And the reason why this was desirable is it's very easy scientifically to substitute a different payload in this delivery system because you design it by computer based on the sequence that you're trying to deal with. So the, the genetic sequence of the spike protein was already was known very quickly at the beginning of the pandemic. That's easy to do genetic with genetic research. It's standard these days. And so they could design exactly what to put into the genetic code of the mRNA that went into the payload for the vaccine. That takes only weeks to do that. And so the idea is when you need to, dev uh, to develop a new vaccine because some new illness comes, it's only weeks using this payload system, the, this delivery system to put in a new contents and then you know, produce it and, and, and send it all out, deliver it. And so the idea was that this is going to be a large scale, massive scale delivery system that allows making any new vaccine for any purpose at any time on a moment's notice. And that was the idea. This was a fantasy of government scientists, corporate scientists, corporate interests to say, this is going to work without hazard in large scale use in the public. It's one thing if you're doing this to make a treatment for cancer patients. If somebody has a 30% chance of dying in the next five years because of a cancer that you, you, you have that, you know, that needs to be treated, they're gonna take a risk of something that could be serious like this. But when you give this to 200 million healthy Americans, mm -hmm. any, any microscopic serious adverse risk is not appropriate. That's how we've managed vaccines in the past. That is appropriate for vaccines because they're given to healthy people, not sick people. Yeah. And that's, that is the problem. The muddled thinking and the fantasy that this platform will be nirvana for vaccine development, will solve all vaccines on a moment notice, is just an utter fantasy that, that will, will not work without large-scale damage, and that's what we've seen in the pandemic. That is the bottom line of the pandemic. That's what's been driving all this. This, this government scientist idea that we're gonna solve all future pandemics by this platform of, of the mRNA device encapsulated in a lipid nanoparticle delivery system. Yeah, and and as you mentioned, like the the connection there, whether it was released on purpose, we don't know that yet. But it sure seems like it would be beneficial for Moderna to release it on purpose, don't you think? If they already had the platform to deliver their uh, mRNA injection. Well, you know, that would be depraved. That would be an act of war, mm -hmm. an act of of domestic terrorism, uh, if that is what happened. Um, so we don't really know. I mean, I, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm, I, I don't like to speculate on things that we can't possibly know about. Uh, I like to stick to the scientific facts gotcha. and understand what they actually mean, what their implications are and how to, and how to manage it. And, you know, I think part of the reason why we're even having this conversation today is because of developments in, in how we're trying to manage all the damage that's occurred from these vaccines. 
Yeah. And so just a kind of like a history lesson of the government becoming involved with clinical trials, with vaccine development. I mean, in 1967, the swine flu, that rollout was a failure. I think 25 people died, so they immediately pulled it off the shelf. Meanwhile, now look how many deaths we have caused by the mRNA injection we have today. None. None. <laughs> the yeah. government says none. Right. Yes. Uh, trust the government. Uh, never. So. But could you please explain like a a brief history of the government getting involved with vaccines, vaccine development, the the vaccine court and what that all is and all that stuff? Well, the issue about vaccines is that they represent a very large commercial interest and they also represent a very large potential legal liability for adverse events. And the at at the time this came after 9/11 when we surrendered our absolute constitutional rights in the guise of public safety and when we had a war on terrorism there was reason to feel that there were nefarious actors in the population or outside the US trying to do harm to the United States and so we surrendered some of our liberties for an additional sense of security. This got amplified at the time when we started considering biological weapons and the, the pharma realized that it had leverage over producing vaccines that it could threaten the government to say, we're not gonna make these vaccines at all. In fact, we're not gonna make any vaccines unless we have protection against people suing us for adverse events of the vaccines. So this didn't happen back in the Reagan administration? Didn't he create some sort of vaccine court back in the 70s? I That may be true. Uh, this has been an ongoing debate. Continuation type of thing. Yes, but uh, I think it reached its apex in the PrEP Act, where mm-hmm. the, the current uh, crop of manufacturers were given legal immunity, that the only way that they could be held accountable was if they committed fraud in the development of their products. But other natural, so to speak, adverse events that came about either by bad manufacturing or by, in fact, by the design of how the things actually work and do what they do, or any other reason like that was was just not uh, litigationable with the companies or anybody who, you know, who who's acting for the companies to force you with mandates, mm-hmm. perhaps, and that instead the government set up a I think four billion dollar fund to adjudicate cases of people who were actually harmed or killed from the vaccines, and of course this is a gaslighting system because every they're all in denial that the vaccines actually do anything. So right. if, you know, if you have a heart attack the day after getting back uh, vaccinated, uh, it's just a coincidence. It was a cold shower, right? You were out gardening. Uh, Blame it on right. something else. That's right. Blame it on something else. This is a big problem in medicine in general, which is another hour conversation. But in any event, the, so the gaslighting principle has been in high gear, denying the culpability of the, the vaccines in, in any way to cause any harm to anybody at all. And gradually, thing in, inescapably, got out the myocarditis, pericarditis, and clotting issues that have occurred with these vaccines have been public knowledge. And the CDC has not been able to hide over that. They've had to admit it. They play it down. They gaslight it down into negligible levels when, in fact, 
some studies where, where people, everybody is tested after vaccination, not just symptomatic people, but everybody show that there's a lot higher incidence of somewhere around 2% of people who have silent or symptomatic heart damage. Mm. We don't know. Symptomatic heart damage is severe. It's not mild. People who have the this damage to their heart muscle have shortened lifespans. They, they will lose cardiac function 10, 15 years later. That is damaging just because they can walk around and look like they're doing normal life after they get out of three days in the hospital does not mean they've been cured. They, they have an injury that will be much more important later in life. We don't know if that applies to asymptomatic people who have bio, biochemical measurable blood markers of these same things, but no symptoms. We just don't know that yet. We're going to have to study this more. Now, let me ask you about that. Uh, the adverse reactions to the MRNA shots. Um, can you let us know exactly what we know for sure? Let's get rid of the speculation. Let's get rid of the conspiracy. Let's just go with the facts. The spike protein production, the shedding, what do we know versus what is just kind of speculative? We know that the spike itself is a toxic molecule, that it circulates in the bloodstream. It gets out of the injection site does not just go to the lymph nodes, it gets into the bloodstream, gets all around the body. It accumulates in some tissues like the ovaries, but it gets into other tissues as well, including the brain and nerves uh, around the body and other, and, and other organs. And the degree to which it causes havoc in those organs is completely uncertain. So some people seem to be unaffected and other people seem to have very severe involvement. People have gotten neurologically handicapped mm -hmm. shortly after taking these vaccines. We don't know why. Perhaps it's that they've had an autoimmune reaction to their nerve cells because the virus entered the nerve cell and put the, the spike protein on the surface of those cells and the body attacked it. The immune system attacked it, attacked the nerve cells, the sheaths, of the nerve cells, which made the nerve cells not work properly, which cause can cause pain, can cause weakness, and, and so on. So we don't know exactly the mechanisms, but we do know that that the spike protein is a highly toxic molecule that can do these various things in various organs. And what it does depends on where it is. So if it's in the brain, it can cause neurological things. If it's in the, the liver, it can cause biochemical things. If it's in the heart, it can cause you know, heart pain, chest pain, and and limited uh, exercise tolerance. It d just depends on where it's doing the damage. As I said, many people have no observable damage at all, and then other people have all these these serious things happen. So it, we don't know how to predict who will be uh, affected that way, and it's just difficult to know that. Well, there is some um, evidence to show that it does impact young males, specifically with the pericarditis. Why is the, the heart tissue such a target for this spike protein and why young males? Um, honestly, I don't know. Maybe even my colleagues would know better than I do, but I, I really can't say. Okay. Yeah, that, that always just bugged me. I'm like, why is it only males and why this the heart tissue? And, you know, it's just, it's when you I see mean, these. women are affected, but not as much. For sure. When you see these, um, you know, athletes at the at the peak of their performance just falling and collapsing, you have to wonder what's going on there, right? But that has happened to women athletes also. Exactly. So, so um, 
the real risk in, in vaccinated people is the high stress levels of competitive professional athletic activities, physical activities. These are people who are pushing their heart function to its limits. And when you and if they're if they're doing that in a climate where there's some damage, that's where the risk is. For people who might even have some damage, but it's very low level, if you don't exercise to the max, you're not likely to get close to that threshold of, of risk of, of, of a heart attack or dying. So that's why this has been a lot more apparent in professional athletes. Um, I've seen cases, for example, there have been a, a number of doctors in Canada who've died, and you look at it and you see various of these people are endurance athletes in the, uh, for you know in their spare time. It's mm -hmm. a, a common pattern. So as far as a, a pattern going forward or as like a, a marker, how do we kind of keep an eye on this as far as, because I mean, parents have injected their children with this stuff. Uh, people just have it in their blood supply. That's like, is it in the blood supply? How do we measure that? And how do we just kind of measure this kind of going forward, I guess, to maintain health? Well, the next question is how long it lasts in the body. How long does yeah. spike protein lasts in the body? We know it lasts a month. It was made, designed to last a long time because RNA itself, the molecule, auto degrades very quickly. There, there's a, a, almost all tissue of the body has an enzyme in it that degrades RNA. And mm -hmm. so the, the RNA, normal RNA gets degraded very quickly, taken apart into its components, recirculated, recycled into making new RNA and, and so on. The vaccines, however, substituted um, uh, one of the letters of the genetic code with an unnatural one called pseudouracil, I believe, hmm. which is uh, slightly altered. And, th and the alteration of this prevents the enzyme that takes RNA apart from doing that. And so this was thought to be able to keep the mRNA around for three or four days in order to make enough of the, um, the spike protein that the, the immune system would respond to. However, it turns out that this RNA can stay around for a month or maybe longer. We don't even know because most of the studies stop after a month, stop looking for it after a month, but it's probably likely that this could stay around for six months or a year. Even. Oh my God. We really don't know that yet. We're going to, we have, it needs to be studied. I don't know how much effort there's been to do that, but that's what needs to be determined. And for this reason, it's prudent for people who've been vaccinated not to exercise to the max for six months until this is settled out normal activities jogging is fine you know to some degree of weightlifting is fine normal swimming is fine normal activities that don't you're not pushing yourself to the max are probably okay but people who've been vaccinated uh, my recommendation is should wait on pushing themselves to their their cardiac endurance limits okay now about this whole shedding thing i've heard like it's a big deal then i've heard it's not a big deal because it's like i don't really get it you know what i mean like Okay, so somebody coughing in my face is practically shedding. You know what I mean? So what is the whole shedding thing about? And it, could that actually induce this spike production as well in your body? Or is it just a bunch of fluff and stuff? It's not fluff and it's not going to induce spike production in your body either. The okay. shedding occurs from the vaccine spike protein that's in circulation and gets into tissues. Uh, whether it comes out from coughing, probably not so much. Probably from the closeness of intimate contact, it, it can be shed that way. In 
time frame of maybe up to a week after vaccination. Women have reported having menstrual irregularities because of getting uh, exposed to shed vaccine spike proteins that can circulate in them. It can be swallowed. It could be inhaled. It could just, it could be, you know, every route in is, is a potential way in. And so these altered menstrual um, signs, symptoms, can has been reported, and not uncommonly so, not very common either, but it has been reported. And whether this has any permanent significance, probably not, because the, the people who uh, are exposed to the spike protein are not exposed to the, the vaccine itself. They're the not mRNA, exposed to right? the, the mRNA, the just, just the spike protein part. So it's a passive exposure that doesn't replicate, and therefore it's going to go away and and should not have any more serious long-lasting consequences, in my opinion. Gotcha. And now uh, you're part of the wellness company, correct? And you right. guys have the natokinase product, the spike, um, I forget the name of it right off the top of my head, but it has natokinase in it yes. uh, to help dissolve blood clots and uh, whatnot? No, it's not actually for that. It may it has some of that function. Um, it's a more general nanokinase is an enzyme that takes apart certain protein clumps, and one of those is clumps that might be made because the spike protein in the blood can stick things together. Mm -hmm. So it can stick um, platelets together. It can stick blood cells together. As the, my understanding, which is relatively simplistic. Um, it can stick uh, blood vessels and platelets to the walls, to the walls of blood vessels, and, and so on. Wherever the spike protein is, it, it does these things. The natokinase is theorized to reduce that kind of stickiness, and we there's some lab evidence for that. That's why it's put as part of the product. This is a cocktail of things. There's five or six ingredients in the spike removal supplement on our site. And we've had recently now enough patients to start seeing benefit of using this. People who've had neurological um, problems have had those ameliorated, starting to see that kind of benefit. Hmm. I'm not seeing it myself because I don't treat patients, but my colleagues who do have said they're seeing this now. Remember, the wellness company was created because of the total corruption of medicine by pharma and pharma basically buying allegiance through hospitals, medical journals, lay media advertising, um, spokesmen, academic spokesmen, and so on. Pharma has bought allegiance to all of its demands that people use expensive medications that give pharma profit. And so doctors who want to use generic medications that um, are, are low cost, but who, that work off label are perfectly valid to do that until you have pharma and, and FDA and, and CDC and government states, attorney generals and medical boards and professional medical societies with consensus statements that are totally bogus, all stepping in at pharma's behest to try to interfere with the practice of medicine. And that is the reason why we started the, the, the wellness company, is to allow doctors to be doctors, to let them practice using their best scientific medical knowledge and expertise, uh, 
not being controlled by these corporate interests that force them not to use things that work, force them to use things that don't work, put people at risk or not being treated at all. And that was the genesis of it. The yeah. fact that we've got supplements on there is also because we recognize that there are things that people could use that are beneficial to them, that are relatively low cost, that, for, for example, vitamin D, everybody should be taking vitamin D mm -hmm. across the board. People should have vitamin D levels if they ever get a measured between 50 and 75. That's enough to be in good shape without being too much. And there's easy ways to do this, and it's very cheap to do this. You can buy the stuff on Amazon, vitamin D with, with vitamin K2 combined for six cents a day. This is all stuff that everybody should know about as part of, part of modern living and, and should be able to manage on their own. And, and so this is a kind of our uh, approach to medicine is just going back to standard medical practice, uncorrupted by all these economic forces trying to control the practice of medicine. Yeah, and the 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 thought of um, individualized medicine. I mean, I heard you in a previous interview where the lady uh, described it. I forget her name. Apologies, but she described it as people were being treated as an algorithm. You know, where it's like a plug and play for everybody. It's like, well, no, every body is different, right? My body is different from your body, and you know, just however we need to be treated as 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 a patient. It's an art, right? The healthcare is an art. It's not just an algorithm. So, um, well, there's art. There's there's medical intuition. Mm -hmm. There's medical deductiveness. There's sensitivity, and there's science. All of that goes into expertise. It's a professional expertise. You expect doctors to have accumulated this expertise and to use, do their best with each unique patient, not go through a checklist of things. We've seen this throughout the pandemic that everybody needs to be vaccinated. Well, what about? children who don't get sick with COVID, you know? What about adolescents who, who don't get seriously sick with COVID? No, they didn't be vaccinated too, to protect grandma. Well, mm -hmm. didn't grandma get vaccinated? Didn't the vaccine work on her? What, what if, why did they need to be vaccinated? Oh, because everybody needs it. Well, they've already had COVID, they've got natural immunity. Isn't that better? Well, it is better, but they need to be vaccinated too. Sure, they need to be vaccinated too. Everybody needs it. This is the mentality, that the absurd mentality that everything is simplified down to one and only one thing and that's all you get and we tell you what it is that is not the practice of medicine that is what this company is about to break that stranglehold on the practice of medicine i love it yeah that i couldn't have said it any better and so where can people go to find you find the company and it's uh all the the good products that you sell and the services that you provide the company is at twc.health the wellness company twc health and we the website there has links and boxes for the, the the supplements that we sell making doctor's appointments we do face-to-face -face telemedicine i think right now three quarters of our appointments are same day appointments um, we have three different classes of service you can just get a face-to-face -face doctor appointment out of the blue i think it's 75 dollars for the for the visit if you are a member of the, the wellness company, which costs $10 a month, then I think the, the appointments are $60. And we're also now starting a one wellness program, which is basically to buy the services of the wellness company. And for $200 a month, you get any number of doctor appointments per month that you want. You get uh, up to 10 supplements per month of any of the range of supplements that you want. If you are a person who needs wants to use uh, you know, two or three supplements from the, all the ones that are sold, 
and you need a doctor visit or two a month, it's a great deal at that point. And so all of this, is, and there's voluminous information about everything on the website. We support with knowledge everything that we provide. And so that means that each of the supplements has a breakdown of every ingredient in it, what it would cost you to go into the marketplace and buy the same ingredients so you know that we're selling it for less than what it would cost you to buy, that there's the scientific evidence for what each ingredient does based on what we're, we're saying it might be useful for. And uh, this is all as transparent as we could possibly make it. And I, and I think this is, you know, how, how could you do be honest anymore? Now you might think, okay, well, I don't need half those ingredients, so I'll buy something else. That's all perfectly fine. But you have the knowledge to be able to do that from what we provide. And, and there's also literature on COVID and medical care and the biographies of all of us and, and so on that we are trying to make this personal and knowledgeable and sensitive and interactive with, with our patients and, and our clients. And, and this is the best we can do. Yeah, and completely transparent, it looks like. So yeah, I appreciate it. And Dr. Rish, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, is there anywhere that people can find you, any social media? Well, the, the easiest way to find me is just to Google Rish, R-I-S-C-H, and Yale, Y-A-L-E. I have a web page there. It has my Telegram channel listed. My Telegram channel, which is my only social media, is Harvey Rish, M.D., Ph.D., and uh, you can find it, find me either way. Perfect. Well, again, I appreciate your time, and thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Great to be with you. All right. We'll talk to you later. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. $5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code GAME to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. 